Welcome to the Future Humans podcast with Gene Houston and Annalise Smitsman, the co-authors of the Future Humans Trilogy. Hello, friends. Today we have the enormous pleasure of welcoming our dear friend, Lynn McTaggart. Lynn is internationally best-selling and award-winning author, journalist, who for over 20 years has been examining the bridge between frontier science and spirituality. You know, Lynn is mainly known for the quality of her, and is an extraordinary quality, narrative nonfiction, and the depth of her research, her inspirational teaching style, her uncompromising role as a new thought leader and spiritual change agent. Over the years, she has been variously called a metaphysical rock star, and my golly, God, she really is. She's been called the Madonna of the quantum world. <laughs> so funny. The Malcolm Gladwell of the new science, and even the Dalai Mama. I'm sure he would have gotten a big kick over that one. <laughs> she is she is consistently voted one of the world's top 100 spiritual leaders for her groundbreaking work with consciousness and the powers of thought. <laughs> now, in order to understand more about the, uh, what should we say, the spiritual engineering behind the healing powers of thoughts, Lynn has organized rigorous scientific studies. One that I've been a part of for many years is called the Intention Experiments. And working with scientists at prestigious universities around the world, Lynn has been particularly interested in the power of group intention with its mirror effect, not only transforming recipients, but reflecting back on the senders. You know, I've, as I say, I've been, been a member of one for years, and we have been stunned at how we spend Monday nights, and we have at least, uh, well, probably about 20 people, but we, this is in a little town in Oregon, Ashland, Oregon, and each time we bring something from our lives or a friend's lives that really does need looking at, feeling about, reconstituting, remythologizing at a new level. And I would say that in, well, probably over 90% of the cases, change happens. Life changes. The unexpected and the inexplicable become possible. The intention experiment, which is now a great deal more than an experiment, isn't it, Lynn? It seems to me a, a, an extraordinary fact that is giving us radically new understandings of who and how and what we are in this world that gives us hope for all the breakdowns that are happening around us and the breakthroughs that are coming in this new work of discovering who we are in relationship to the cosmos, the depths of ourselves, the divine intentions, and above all, as Dante said, l'amore che muove il sole e l'altra stelle, the love that moves the sun and all the stars. 
She's also co-founder, editorial director of the health magazine, What Doctors Don't Tell You, <laughs> now published in 15 languages worldwide, and Get Well, the International Holistic Health Expo. Then is also a tireless campaigner for consumer rights. Consumer rights in healthcare is much needed. So, dear Lynn, you've been on the frontier of the new science. How would you describe its, its fundamental difference from the mechanistic Newtonian sciences that many kids still learn at school, unfortunately? What are the major implications for children, for ourselves, for life itself of this new science? Great question, Jean, and thank you. I think I, I was very interested to see that your dog may not be agreeing with the, all of those accolades about me, <laughs> but I'm glad that you and Amalouche do. As you um, said that, she's, she's very young. She's a young puppy, and she's just <laughs> wagging her tail wildly. So, you know, she has given you her blessing. Her paws up. <laughs> Great. Paws up, tail going. Okay, brilliant. So the main difference really is a sense of us as being part of something bigger or an isolated and separate thing. You know, Newtonian science described us as, <clears throat> and everything in the world, as isolated entities, you know, self-contained entities operating according to fixed laws in time and space. All of these separate objects out there operating in a very well-behaved manner. But the new science says, well, it's we're a lot messier than that, but a lot more interesting. We're all part of a larger whole. We now understand ourselves as part of a giant quantum field called the zero-point field. And the main thing is that we understand from quantum physics and all of the new science that we're all connected. The, and we're also creators, and that's the key element here. Um, quantum physics has two very interesting properties. One is the idea of non-locality, so that once subatomic particles uh, are in contact, they always remain in contact and influencing each other, no matter how far uh, they have been moved, and also whether or not they exist differently in time. So they they influence each other over all space and all time forever. We also know that subatomic particles actually aren't a set something. They're a potential of something. And I like to explain it this way. Imagine a subatomic particle is a chair in an auditorium. Well, he's not only that chair, he's also every chair in the auditorium all at the same time. He's in a state of superposition, which means he's only a potential. He's all possible selves all at the same time until observed. And that reduces him down to one particular state. Now, observation or measurement means that the observer is also a creator is also something that makes the potential of something, something real. So besides that, and the whole prospect that we are creating our world at every moment, that we're all part of this giant energy field, that we're in contact with all information all at once. Besides that, 
We are also born with an extraordinary number of incredible capacities that are disparaged by conventional science. Our thoughts are not only things, they're things that affect other things. And that's, of course, the work that I've been really investigating. We also know we can see beyond our senses. We know that we can forecast events. Uh, the information about premonitions and the science about it is indisputable. We have the ability also to move beyond time, to go back and forth in time, work that's really interested me at the moment. So with all of these things, what I'm really talking about is we are far more than we're told. And current science diminishes our extraordinary capacities. Thank you so much. That is indeed profound and a, and a really important shift right now, especially as we are faced with so many challenges. And we need to be able to tap into these capacities. And you know, I'm, I'm really grateful <laughs> for everything that you're doing for humanity to help us tap into these capacities. So I'd love to hear from you a little bit more about the intention experiment um, as well, and especially from this understanding that you just shared about our creative powers. And then also also, what do you believe would be the most potent, transformative, evolutionary intention that we could really hold, all of us right now, everyone listening and watching, and not just once, but to, <laughs> to really live into that? Oh, that's such a great question. Thank you. Wow. Okay, first of all, my intention experiments started out of curiosity. Um, I have a background as an investigative reporter. I mean, when I was in my 20s, I was walking around with hidden tape recorders. And my first big project was busting international baby selling rings, lawyers who were uh, involved in what is so-called gray market adoption. And that became my first book. So even as I moved into spirituality and science and the link between them, that sort of dogged investigative element in me has never left me. And so when people were talking about, you know, the secret and manifesting and all of these kinds of ideas, after I'd written my book, The Field, there was certainly a lot of evidence demonstrating that thoughts are not just things, they're things and energy that affect other things. So the investigative reporter in me was basically saying, well, how far can we take this? You know, are we talking about very subtle effects like, you know, shifting a quantum particle or are we talking about curing cancer with our thoughts? And I was also fascinated by the idea of what happens when lots of people have the same thought at the same time. Does that magnify the effect? So that's why I set up the intention experiment. I figured, well, by then, the field had been in 30 languages. So I figured, well, I've got lots of readers around the world, but I also know all of these scientists that I'd interviewed and had really tutored me in quantum physics, et cetera. So I thought if I put them together, I'd have the biggest global laboratory in the world. So that's what I did back in 2007. I wrote the book, The Intention Experiment, not only about the science of intention, but also as an invitation for people to come on to my website or what became later, all kinds of broadcasts 
And periodically I would run an intention experiment with a scientist who was skilled and schooled in consciousness research. And I wanted to use scientists from different prestigious universities, everything from Penn State to Princeton to University of California to uh, University of Arizona and numerous ones in Europe, because I didn't want to be accused of bias. So that's what we've done. We've done everything from trying to make seeds grow faster to purifying water to lowering violence um, in war-torn or violent areas. Uh, officially the most violent place in America was one of them in St. Louis, Missouri, um, to uh, healing people of things like post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, we've run 40 to date, and of those 40, 36 have shown measurable, um, positive, mostly significant effects. So to put that in context, there is no pharmaceutical drug out there with that kind of consistent track record. So that was interesting to me. And the power of these thoughts was really fascinating to me. But I've also discovered it doesn't, what most people think is, ah, the more we have, the more people we have, the more powerful the effect. Not necessarily so. What I found when we did one experiment trying to make seeds grow faster and we grew we we ran it six times from different locations with different sized audiences every single time out of four sets of seeds and these are blinded experiments so the scientists don't know which ones we're sending intention to of all six the seed sent intention grew significantly higher than controls and in some cases we had thousands of people doing the intention, in other cases, just 100. I've also seen that a power of eight group can move mountains too, just eight people. So it doesn't have to be a big group. It just needs to be a group. And I like to think of eight as a bit of a Goldilocks figure, you know, not too big, not too small. And it also, of course, has all of those indigenous and mythical associations, eight being an infinity sign and a lucky uh, number in China, etc. But in terms of what thought would be the most healing, here's the most extraordinary thing that I've more recently discovered, which is when we do intention experiments, the outcome is really interesting. And as I say, we've we've had about eight or 10 peace intention experiments. And every single time using data from war-torn areas, from official sources or the police in violent areas, we've demonstrated and professors of statistics have demonstrated this, that we've had an extraordinary effect. Not interesting part of the story, however. The more interesting part of the story is the effect on the participants. So when we've done intention experiments since 2008, I have surveyed the participants and asked them, well, how was that for you? And I started out doing so just to find out if people could get onto my internet site because initially it was freezing and we had some, some challenges with it. And also said, you know, how was that for you? Just to get some feedback. And back came the most extraordinary stuff like, I felt like I was part of a higher network. 
I had goosebumps up and down my arms and legs. I was sobbing uncontrollably, or I felt like I was in the tractor beam in Star Trek. Now, understand the people participating are sitting in front of their computer screen alone, as we are. And we are, you know, we're not even in the same room together. We're not on the same continent together. And yet people are feeling this. And I felt it many times myself where the heat coming off my computer, my otherwise cold computer is almost unbearable. I have to stand back a foot. So not only that, they started talking about stuff in their lives. So they started talking about um, healing relationships, becoming closer to their estranged partners, uh, getting along better with their not very nice bosses, um, uh, um, talking, having their children suddenly talk to them for the first time, their adult children in many years, and some 40% said, I feel more love for everyone I come in contact with. So their lives were becoming peaceful. And something like 45 to 50% of people who participate in, in these intention experiments report healings of some sort. Their arthritis isn't so bad. Um, they've suddenly, their guts healed. Um, and, and more amazingly, aspects of their lives have healed. Um, so I started realizing there's a mirror effect with these intention experiments. So the target is interesting, but almost not as interesting as the participants. And the other thing I discovered, I started more recently doing some where I invite polarized people. So I started this in 2011 with the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And I was pretty sick of watching those buildings come down. So I decided to do something different, create a different narrative. So I invited my Western participants. And then I also, also worked with a guy called Dr. Salah Al-Rashid, who Jean knows very well, who is like the Deepak of the Middle East. And I asked him to bring along his, his, uh, his Arab followers. And I've spoken there numerous times, so they knew me too. And so we got both sides together. We did an intention to heal, uh, well, to lower violence in the two southern, most southern provinces in Afghanistan, which were the, the center of the Taliban. And I got data out of um, a German general who was part of NATO, the heading up these combined forces. And indeed, the violence had gone down precipitously just in those two provinces. But much more interesting was what was happening between the participants. They were starting to Facebook each other, the Arabs and the Americans. They were starting to send love to each other. They were sending your God is my God type of thing, all back and forth like this. And I was stunned by that. So some years later, I made a bigger intention experiment with Arabs. From And Jean was there when we did this. Um, we had Arabs from eight different Arab cities participating. And then the ninth auditorium. So these were, it was a special uh, setup I was using where we could put 
cameras into, I think, 10 different locations in total. So we had cameras in eight different Arab cities, in conference rooms in eight different Arab cities in Kuwait and Jordan and Saudi Arabia, et cetera. And the ninth camera was put in an audience of Israeli Jews. And we did an intention to lower violence in a portion of Jerusalem that was experiencing a lot of violence. And once again, I mean, to try to set up this experiment, I had to be the go-between because the Arabs refused to talk to the Israelis and the Israelis were refusing to talk to the Arabs and everybody was pissed off at everybody else. And as one Arab told me, I've never even seen a Jew before. We are taught, we grow up and we're taught that they have horns growing out of their heads. So we do this experiment Afterward, I'm talking to each of the audiences because I can talk to each one. They can talk to me. They can talk to each other. And they started saying, once again, your God is my God. We love you, sister. They were sending love to each other. They were, it was a big love fest. Everybody was crying, et cetera, et cetera. So I started recognizing that these intention experiments also help the heart to leap across the fence. So for me, that's a long-winded answer to your question, Anna I think the more important thing is it's not the intention, it's the bringing together of polarized people that is the power here to heal the world. And I started looking into why. And I found the answer through um, Dr. Dacker Keltner from the University of California at Berkeley, a psychologist who did a study with students, showing them sets of pictures, putting them into two groups, showing them sets of pictures. One group were shown pictures of the world's victims and the other group, you know, starving children. The other group were shown pictures designed to elicit pride, like, um, the st- uh, the football team at Berkeley beating um, beating Stanford University's football team, their greatest rivals, or the picture of the campus, all those kinds of things. So afterward, Keltner then showed them other photos of people, all kinds of disparate people. The people who had been shown the pictures of the world's victims identified more closely with people not like them. If they were Democrats, they identified with Republicans, they identified with the homeless, they identified with prisoners. The people who were shown pictures designed to elicit pride felt closer and identified more with doctors, lawyers, wealthy financiers, the people they were going to become. So it's all down to the vagus nerve, the biggest nerve in the body. And here's the key piece. When we are activated to do something altruistic, it activates that vagus nerve, the third part of the vagus nerve that gets us past fight or flight and all of those things where we shrink and allows us to connect with other people. And that is what is powerful here, connection with other people, whether it's eight or eight million. And that leaps, helps the heart leap across the fence. I mean, that is extraordinary, my friend. And it seems to me that your life has been one long series of aha. Aha, <laughs> aha, 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 aha. <laughs> um, 
and that you have become also for, with with it, 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 this uh, this extraordinary dialectic in your life between doing frankly world observing and world changing experiments, but at the same time being so aware of the subtle energies of thoughts, so that you have these massive deep seeings. And uh, uh, and quite frankly, you know, as as a person who is deeply interested in how do we begin to resolve the enormous numbers of crises in our time, when a world is trying to come together and not doing a very good job of it. And yet it seems that the source fountain of the shifts is the subtle energies of thought. Is that not so? How do you do? Go ahead. No, it totally is. It totally is because we have to recognize, you know, I always like to say we're all leaky buckets because we have to understand that we have energy. We are emitting energy all of the time, as you two know ever so well. And one of those energies is thoughts. And so we are we are essentially leaking into other people and things at every moment. And the big mistake people make with intention is to think, oh, so I'll do my intention first thing in the morning. I do my meditation. I do my prayers. I do my intention. And that'll be the only thing the universe hears. But every thought we have, you know, every bit of flotsam and jetsam going through our heads, and we've got 70,000 of them a day, every single one Every mendacious thought we have, every last mendacious thought, that also is an intention. And collectively, it becomes your life's intention. So people aren't very conscious of what they're thinking all the time and conscious of how uh, destructive their thinking is all the time, particularly to themselves. Because, you know, I work with my students and say, Okay, keep a record of what you're thinking as much as you can this week. And they're all shocked at how horrendous their thinking is, you know, and what they're beaming out to the world all the time. So um, I think that, yeah, the subtleties of thought are what are, you know, a great deal of what is creating this, this mess we now have. I mean, the other thing is, of course, we are living according to the wrong story. Getting back to what you all have been talking about, you know, this story, because besides the Newtonian um, limitations that we talked about earlier, the other problem is the Darwinian limitations, you know, that we have been defined as uh, life is struggle. We have been defined as there just ain't enough to go around. And so life must proceed through struggle. And it has to be, I win, you lose. It has to be, um, uh, there, I take it first. And that's the only way to live. You know, we it's a struggle. That's our leitmotif, a struggle for survival. And so that's informed every one of the, of the, societal structures we've created. So we need that new science to permeate there too. I agree. I think this is really important. And that's the shift from the story of separation 
and dualistic polarization to the one indeed of the universe as a unified reality and evolution, not the process of competition, but incredible collaboration um, and the maturation of our species. Now, what really struck me in the examples that you just gave, where it landed for me is I feel that the power of these experiments that you were showing are also showing us the power of our heart. So the coherence of the human heart, and that is something that happens when we are really bringing, in fact, that all that thought activity, right, right into the heart and to connect, <laughs> it shifts the patterns and that that in itself is healing. So I'm, I'm wondering if that also came up in, in many of these experiences. You know, experiments that you were seeing about in, as you know, in Return of the Avatars, we wrote about this as the wisdom of the higher heart and how the higher heart is essential for being able to hear our human powers in service of life. So it becomes again aligned with that evolutionary process. So I'd love to hear your understanding of that power and especially for younger generations, you know, where might be listening or watching right now, that they understand that power of their human heart, that it's like there's a superpower <laughs> uh, inside there that they may not even have tapped into. Absolutely. Now, our technique of doing intention, I haven't used heart math, although I have a lot of respect for what they do. And they use the terms coherence, you know, for heart coherence, et cetera. And that has a, a very specific meaning for them. What I found, and I think we're talking about the same thing here, Anilush, is altruism is the big piece in the intention experiments in the power of eight. Remember, with the power of eight, you're doing intention for different people, as Jean explained in her own power of eight a group. Most of the time, you're intending for someone else, and yet it is reflecting back on you, and you are being healed. I have countless stories of people who were part of a power of eight group once as a sender and have remarkable, extraordinary healings that I can talk about. Um, and I find it almost doesn't matter whether you're the sender or the receiver. I usually say to people who are stuck, get off of yourself. Stop intending for yourself. Intend for somebody else and see what happens. And again, when I started delving into why Power of Eight groups work, because, I mean, I set them up as an accident. This was 2008. I wanted to try to shrink down what was going on in my intention experiments into a workshop. And I wasn't really sure what to do. So I was kicking it around with my husband one night, Brian. And I said, oh, I don't know, maybe I'll put people in groups of eight or so and have them send intention to someone with a health problem. And he, Brian's a very good journalist and a good headline writer. So he said, yeah, I love it. The power of eight. And that is literally how it started. <clears throat> we did not expect it to be anything more than just a nice, comfy thing to have, you know, like getting a facial or getting your back massaged. And we were astonished in that first workshop when we had somebody with arthritis walking normally the next day who had really been limping, somebody else with uh, bad digestive problems, having that healed, somebody else with depression saying that was lifted, somebody else with cataracts saying it was 80% better. And it shocked us, it frightened us. And 
it's probably why it took me 10 years to get up the courage to finally publish the book, The Power of Eight, after trying to understand it. And one of the things that I realized as I started studying was the power of altruism. I mean, altruism is totally like a, a bulletproof vest. People, the science shows, people who do things for other people live longer, happier, healthier lives. There's no question. If you're ill with a condition and you help somebody else with the same condition, you're more likely to get better. And so it goes. I mean, it's just extraordinary. The evidence for community and help and the power of altruism. So that combined with our need for community, we have fundamental human need for community. Think about every aspect of modern life is kind of predicated on solitary individ competitive individualism. And so everything about the way we live now is the way we shouldn't be living. So I think altruism is bringing back, a power of eight group is reminding people of why it's so important to be in a community and also why it's so important to give and that you're gonna get many times over when you give. So I think that's the real centerpiece of my work. That and, um, and I think oneness, because we did some brainwave studies. I worked with Life University, which is the biggest and you know most prestigious chiropractic university in the world. They were kind of intrigued by Power of Eight groups. So they put their neuroscience team at my disposal, which was brilliant. And we got student volunteers and we put an EEG cap on one member of each group, a sender each time. And we expected the brainwaves to come out of that, to look just like meditation. They looked nothing like meditation. We were shocked. They looked almost identical to the brainwave signatures recorded by Dr. Andrew Newberg at the University of Pennsylvania, studying Buddhist monks during ecstatic prayer or Sufi masters during chanting. Parts of the brain involved in separation. So the parietal lobes, which sit right back here and help us navigate through space and tell us, this is me, this is not me. They were turned way down. And so were parts of the brain in the frontal, right frontal lobes involved with negativity, doubt, all of those things dialed way down and other parts as well. And there was a lowering of brain activity, not an increase as there is in meditation in certain brain waves. So these were people in a state of ecstatic oneness, essentially. And really, the, the separation between them was dissolving. And that's what we see. That's what is reported all the time. So I think the oneness piece is really important for our future evolution, too, because we don't get to live, you know, we all talk about we're all one and we all talk about, you know, we're all part of this giant field, but nothing in our lives supports that. We don't live that way. You know, we live in isolation, in separation. And so this is a little moment where you can transcend that. Wonderful. Talking about transcendence, what about the transcendence of time? You know, when I was uh, 18, 19, I had a terrible hobby. I would, uh, I jumped out of planes. 
with a parachute, you know. <laughs> it was only $5 a jump in those days <laughs> in New Jersey. And one day I jumped and I pulled my ripcord and nothing happened. And I pulled and pulled again. Still more nothing happened. But then life shift and my whole life went by at its own natural time. Now, not every little pork chop and Hershey bar, but it was the, the, the significant incidents of my life. And then either the chute opened or we're having a conversation in paradise now. Now, we, we do know quantum physics saying that time past, time future, time present are simultaneous in ways that is very hard for us with our arrow of time notion to, to understand. And I know that you have been doing some very, very interesting experiments on time reversal, the power of our future selves, you know, mm -hmm. and even the power of our future or present selves influencing our past selves. So, for example, I've, as you know, I've been doing a series in which I will take people back to a not a major, but a minor incident in their past for example, for a teacher saying, you have no talent for art, just go read, you know, during that class. And and you go, they go back and you turn, turn the story. Oh, well, now, Alice, what a wonderful, so much talent, a fat person who looks like a house. Keep at it. And Alice then, who is now 42 years old, goes back to art school. And within two years, she's having her own showing. These little simple shifts in past and as we will see in future, can remarkably change our lives and certainly our present. So you've been doing these experiments, these experiments on time reversal mm -hmm. and the power of the future selves, you know, which is something that Anne Luce and I've been writing about in mm -hmm. our book, especially The Return of the Avatar. Can you share some of the experiments about the power of our future selves that you, what you've learned from them? Absolutely. We have done, I've been doing a lot of work on retro intention as well. And, um, and, um, and, and also on future intention as well. And the future it, uh, affecting the past, there is an enormous body of evidence on scientific evidence on um, retro intention of people doing intention in front of REG machines, random event generators. Princeton University did this. Um, after they'd run and they'd found they still had an influence on these machines, they also found they did remote viewing experiments. Um, and most of their uh, remote viewing experiments were done like this. There'd be a remote viewer in the lab and he'd have a traveling partner, somebody he didn't really know, who had been just another student. So the traveling partner would be given an envelope and it would be his destination. The remote viewer would not know what the destination was. And the traveling partner, once he found it, would have to go there. And it'd be anywhere from around the block to, you know, 3,000 miles away or whatever. And it would be a specific place like a museum or a train station or whatever. And the remote viewer would have to, meanwhile, as the other, as his partner went there, once he got there, he would have to draw and describe where his partner was. And they had enormous success with that. But then they decided to make it more interesting. They would ask the remote viewer to draw and describe where his partner was going 
before the partner even picked the envelope, even knew where he was going, even chose where he was going. And two thirds of their, they had enormous success, huge percentage of cases were very detailed drawings and, and descriptions of where the partners were in that precognitive setup where it was forecasting where they were going before they'd even taken their envelope. So there's all kinds of evidence of this. And the Institute of Noetic Sciences done one study, which was a several stage process with a psychological study. And they found interesting stuff showing overwhelmingly that the second process would influence the speed of the first process. Say it again. The second process would influence the speed of the first process. So from all of the evidence, I've come to the belief that we don't change the past. The future changes the present as it's unfolding. The future changes the present as it's unfolding. And the evidence in quantum physics consistently that time is one big smeared out now. So it's <clears throat> we it doesn't mean that everything is determined, deterministic, and so that everything that is going to happen will happen as it plays out. But what it means is much more. There is a time that is now. It's not a it's not linear. It's not even relative, as as uh, Einstein said. It's just all now, and that it is a quantum process like everything else, subject to creation, the creation of an observer. So <clears throat> we've done things where what I work on mostly is the emotional experience of the past, bringing people back and changing their power, essentially. What I do with the future is I let groups design the future because Power of Eight groups are actually more powerful, I think, in helping people to cr create in future, just as we're able to create. So time is very elastic and we can use it as creators too. We have to just get past the idea that time is linear and certainly no good quantum physicist worth his salt will say there's any such thing as linear time. Are you putting this in your new book? I am probably, <laughs> I'm planning to do some more work in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. And it gives me all kinds of new experiments for my intention circle group. <laughs> great, great. Good. Yeah. So it's, you know, we have to just get past the story we've been told is the bottom line mm -hmm. and really understand and absorb the implications of the new sto story about our own capacity as humans to create. So when you talk about, well, what do we need to do? We need to start small. We need to start small, which is why I like the idea of groups, because starting to try to do something huge never seems to work when there are 
big, big changes in human history. You know, famous Margaret Mead comment about her quote about, you know, it's the only thing that ever does. Thank you. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, we need to start small with just small groups recognizing the power we have, the very difference, you know, the thing that we really are and not what we've been told. And once people start recognizing that, then they can start bringing it out to the world. But I think we have to be quietly subversive. And that's the way we're going to do it. That's beautiful. And I want to ask you a very personal question on that, because I can imagine that as you are going through these discoveries and working with people, your own development is stimulated by this as well, right? And also the, you know, the very time in which we are right now is awakening, as, as Gina always saying, these latent capacities as well. So what's kind of an emerging new power or awareness or capacity from you that is coming forth right now, also in response to the time that we're in and as part of your purpose uh, for this time? That's a great question. I mean, what I've noticed through all of my time, particularly once I started working on this, which was, I guess, in the mid 90s, I started getting very interested in in this whole area of science and spirituality. Um, I noticed um, I could count on the universe. Whenever there were hard times, I knew that just holding that belief and intention, things would happen. and. Truly, things did. Um, I remember a few times when, well, we needed more money, and suddenly something would appear, uh, a book project we didn't expect. Um, I, I remember somebody very helpfully um, plagiarized one of my books, and <laughs> that that paid for a bunch of different things. And I've noticed that all the way through the time of my life is that the angels are there. And so I really have learned to trust the process on a very personal level. On a kind of more global level of responsibility, I feel huge responsibility now to do something. And I feel like there's a real urgency to this now and that there isn't all the time in the world um, and we need to do something. And so that's been a big source of interest in mine is trying to do something together. I think my big contribution can be intention experiments demonstrating the power of them, this collective or altruistic endeavor, only 10 minutes to bring warring parties together. And I know that's certainly something that needs to happen, say, in places like America. Um, and I mean, when we for the inauguration, I did an intention experiment um, to try to have a peaceful inauguration after, right after all the events of January 6th. And I brought together uh, deliberately Republicans and Democrats and again, there was a big love fest. And we had some African-Americans and a member of the police force there, too. And again, there was a love fest. Something got transcended. And so I think maybe that will be part of the piece that I bring to the table. You know, you live the life 
of the angel. You really do. You're just flapping there, over overlooking realities, you know, making all kinds of experiments to prove. And what about angels? What about the angelic realm? Obviously, there are many, many, many realms in this very complex universe. Do you believe in, or do you not even believe, do you explore the angelic reality as coextensive with our own and part of the larger ecology of the cosmos? I certainly have looked at a lot of evidence for life after death, put it that way. A lot of the people in my power of eight groups express that I know the empaths in particular will say, I saw light beings behind every chair. It was like they were the magnifiers and they were behind us supporting us and they were the magnifiers. So I've looked at some of that and particularly with some connections with aliens too. And it's an area I would like to explore more, particularly as the even the US government is admitting there is life elsewhere. Um, what I've also been fascinated by is life after death. I mean, a very interesting recent experiment. Uh, there was a guy who had a stroke, I think, and he was brought into the hospital and they put an EEG cap on him and they were measuring brain waves, et cetera, et cetera. Then he had a heart attack because they were trying to find out what was going on in his brain. Then he had a heart attack and died before they were able to take this EEG cap off. And for minutes, it was going. And it was demonstrating huge brainwave activity going on and at very fast frequencies, um, a preponderance of gamma waves. And that is the fastest brainwaves when we are really, you know, trying to dig through memory, when we're trying to have flashes, when we have flashes of insight, all of that. They saw the, this preponderance of gamma waves. And it convinced the scientists that this guy was going through a life review because he was going through his his evidence so so you know so carefully and and focus in such a focused way but also there's so much other evidence for with random event generators with um with uh equipment russian equipment that measures the tiny light coming out of human beings that all of this carries on for a long time when somebody is making a transition. So not just before they die, but after they die. And that plus so much, so much evidence of people like Dr. Gary Schwartz who have done afterlife experiments convinces me that consciousness doesn't die. You know, that there is, we just decouple from our, our body and then move into a different place. But consciousness itself doesn't die. And that is a message, I think, of profound hope right now. <laughs> you know, also, again, especially for the younger ones. So as we are coming to the end, I see, of our podcast now, would you have um, a message for young ones who are listening or watching, or maybe even years after we are broadcasting this, you know, to, to give them hope and strength in their humanity. Absolutely. Um, first of all, I think you have 
young people have a uh, an enormous opportunity here, which is to change some of the, the ways of being that our generation has had and used for so many years that are destructive to the planet, destructive to ourselves, and inconsistent with what we understand about the new science. So this is your moment to recreate the world as it should be. And I would just say to you, one of the most optimistic things I think is the new science and how to live according to the new science because we understand now that we are far grander than we've been told, that we're not these isolated entities living lonely little lives on a lonely little planet, but we are interconnected and new practices, the kind of practices we're experimenting with are giving you maybe a little path, a signpost to a better future and a better way to be. Thank you so much. Final word for you, Jean. Thank you so, so much. <laughs> I, I mute because the dog has interesting ideas and a very full consciousness. So I, <laughs> and she's a baby. It is. has this elaborate relationship to the unseen world. She suddenly stares at something that is not there. And she wags her tail. And she offers her paw. You know... We live in a world far more interesting than anything we can ever imagine. And I strongly suspect that the animals may know a great deal more than we do in that horizon. <laughs> you betcha. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, they see and they pick up energies um, far more than we do. They certainly, you know, all of the information about psychic pets is, you know, is, is really interesting and very compelling. Well, if you want to see one of the most psychic of all psychic dogs, do come and visit. <laughs> You're going to be. <laughs> it sounds like he's learning from the master, or she. Exactly. Yeah, I'm learning from her. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank you uh, so much. <laughs> uh, it's great yes. spending time with you both, and be well. And we will we will chat. It, uh, more in the future. All right. Good luck, current at the next books. Take care. Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Take Bye. care. Till we Bye -bye. meet again. Bye-bye. <laughs>